Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so happy that you are joining us. Uh, this is like our third week in a row recording. We uh, normally do once every other week, but uh, but we we felt inspired to to put out a few more uh, a few more episodes this month, and uh, we're giving you as much as we can here. So I am your host Terry Plucknett. As always, joining me are Todd Plucknett. How's it going, Todd? Good. Good, good, good. And we have, from the People's Republic of Lawrence, Kansas, Zach Saltz. Zach, how's it going? I'm so pumped. I've been waiting to do this deep dive for a very long time. It's It will be the greatest deep dive since uh, we last did Taxi Driver, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, this is one of our deep dive episodes, so we'll be, uh, we'll be going... Uh, We'll be going all in on one of Zach's favorite films this week, um, but before we get into into some movies, uh, I just have to mention. So we're recording. This is a uh, November seventeenth at four o'clock Pacific time. Uh, Todd, how crazy was the Monday night game between the Seahawks and Niners? Oh, it was bonkers. It was. It was uh, the most intense game I've ever watched in the regular season. Yeah, it, it was. It, I, I, it's been a long time since a game has stressed me out that much. That that was that was pretty nuts. Zach, did you catch any of that game? Uh, no. As I said on the last podcast, I really don't watch the NFL anymore. I have better things to do with my life, like watch two and a half hour movies with Matt Damon. Well, there is that. There is that. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, but but I heard it was pretty I, crazy. It was nuts. It it was yeah, like Todd said, super super stressful. And uh, I'm just glad the Seahawks had a bye after that. Like I I saw, even though the Niners were playing the Cardinals, I was thinking coming into today, no matter what, I would have put money against the Niners because they would have been just so worn out after last week's game and as of right now they're losing i don't know if they're going to lose but uh they, they were losing last i checked wouldn't so. it be amazing if the seahawks picked up colin kaepernick and like russell wilson and colin kaepernick formed like a duo like at the end of american gangster when russell crowe and denzel teamed up together that would be I would actually watch the NFL for that. I, I would I would watch the NFL and root for the Seahawks if that happened. We have Geno Smith. Well, you know. <laughs> I, I realize Geno's pretty irreplaceable. Yes, yes. He's the, good the at guy who appear- calling heads or tails. Or or not. I mean, I don't really know. <laughs> heads, heads and tails at the same time. At the same time, yeah. Uh, all right, well, uh, let's... Uh, Let's start with uh, looking at what we're drinking today. So, Zach, what do you got? Oh, uh, I feel so bad that I'm not drinking a screwdriver in honor of Ordell's tr- uh, choice of drink in uh, Jackie Brown. But That's a missed opportunity. I know. Dude. We should all be drinking screwdrivers. But I am drinking the one and only Costco uh, cheap wine, as pointed out by Adam Daly in his riff on our podcast in the last episode. It, it doesn't get any better than it, though. Can't beat it. Pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. 
Todd, what do you got? Uh, I'm drinking Kazool 100 tequila. It's uh, Anejo, so it's dark, and it's really good. And it's out of a very square glass, I see. Yes. It actually has a, a spot for your cigar right there. Oh, it's your cigar wow. glass. Very nice. Looks like you should be a guest on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> All right, so I have here, let's see here. This is out of Backwoods Brewing out of Carson, Washington. This is their Copper Line Amber Ale. Uh, yeah, it's a solid beer. It's pretty good. So, cheers. Cheers. All right, well, uh, we're here to talk about movies, so uh, let's uh, let's get into that. Um, thank you so much again for listening. Uh, find us all over the internet. You can see all of our movie uh, ratings and reviews on almostsideways.com. You can see what's going on with us on Facebook. Uh, find Zach and I on Twitter. See what we're talking about there. But let's get into the, uh, our movie review uh, before we get into our deep dive. We're reviewing a movie that just came out this weekend, and that is uh, Ford v. Ferrari, the new uh, James Mangold movie starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Do you think you can beat Ferrari? We're lighter, we're faster. That don't work, we're nastier. We're gonna make history. Uh, I'm gonna go first on talking about this one. And uh, so this movie is all about uh, uh, Matt Damon's character, Carol Shelby, who is a car designer, former race car driver, and his friendship with driver Ken Miles as they uh, decide to team up with Ford and try to take down uh, Ferrari and their dominance at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And uh, it's so it's a lot of kind of David versus Goliath stuff. You have a lot of uh, fighting against the system. Um, you have um, Ken Miles is kind of this rough around the edges guy uh, with this heart of gold, and you have uh, this this friendship that that buds into uh, what ends up being uh, somewhat of a of a great partnership. Also, um, as I was watching this, uh, there were a few things that that stood out to me. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about the things that stood out to me in a bad way. Um, first off, this uh, in a story like this, I mean, you're not going to tell a story about a David versus Goliath story like this unless you, you know what the ending's going to be, right? You know how it's going to end, so it's all about how you get there. And I felt this was a very... Um, the script, the screenplay was very safe. It was very conventional. Uh, it didn't take any risks. You knew exactly what was coming. The jokes were more of like, ha ha, roll your eyes at it. Uh, it, it felt like a, a script that was first offered to John Lee Hancock to direct, and he and he turned it down. So they went to James Mangold. I, like and John John Lee Hancock, he was like the Blind Side and the Rookie and uh, the Founder. These you know kind of period pieces that are these feel-good, safe, conventional, take-no-risks type of thing. Um, so that that was the first thing that stood out to me. Um, but what made it different than one of his movies is the direction of James Mangold and the performances. I thought uh, Mangold, 
uh, especially uh, pairing with his cinematographer, made an absolutely beautiful movie. It, it's amazing to just look at. The, the visuals uh, kind of going throughout the entire film are stunning. Uh, and also you have uh, it grounded by these two performances, Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Bale by far better than Damon. It's kind of funny, Matt Damon has kind of turned into this actor where no matter what he's playing Matt Damon, like, he, he started talking like, oh, it's Matt Damon with an accent this time. And and it's almost like, I almost feel like he's turned into, like, post-Forrest Gump Tom Hanks. Where every time you see Tom Hanks in a movie now, it's, oh, it's Tom Hanks is in this movie. It's not, oh, look at this amazing performance. It's just, it's Tom Hanks. That's kind of how I feel about Matt Damon. On the complete flip side, you have Christian Bale, who disappears into every role. Even in something like this, where... You look at him, you can obviously see it's Christian Bale, but it's not, it's not, you know, he, he's, he's such a great chameleon and, and especially after, you know, last year being Dick Cheney and Vice, now he's going back to, to playing someone like this. It was very, very skinny. I can't believe the physical transformations he goes through, but, um, but the, the performances by those two and the direction of James Mangold make it bearable even through the exhausting two and a half hour runtime. This movie is way too long. And I'm not one that usually says, you know, this movie movies are way too long. We're going to talk a little bit later about another two and a half hour movie that flies by like nothing. But this one is way too long. The script is way too safe. But it's amazing to look at and the performances are awesome. So I'm kind of torn here. I'm going to give it I'm going with a low three stars here for right now because it is enjoyable to watch. Uh, the per performances, especially Bale, are worth watching, and the visuals are great. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen this like insane praise heaped on this movie, and I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I mean, it's a solid movie, but I don't think it's something that should be contending for Best Picture. All right, that's where I'm at. Let's go to Zach. Zach, what are you thinking? Oh, Terry, you had me. That you know, that was a really good review. That was like that was like a three and a half star review. I'm reviewing your review because I liked a lot of what what you said, especially in the first half of of, of your review. Um, I because I, I, I think you know where I'm going to go with this movie, but I I do really love your comparison <clears throat> with a John Lee Hancock movie. That that's awesome. That was a great like that that should go on the the poster of this movie. It, this should have been directed by John Lee Hancock from Terry Plugnet. That's that that's pretty awesome. Um Yeah, I kind of hated this movie. Uh well, okay, here's the real problem. All right, I'm just going to throw this out there as an elephant in the room. I I cannot we we cannot be seeing these two and a half hour movies when the Irishman is playing, okay? I mean, I get I get it. The Irishman's not playing everywhere, but it was like on my mind the whole time I'm watching this movie. I'm like, why am I watching this movie when I could be watching The Irishman? So that is an unfair comparison. <laughs> I apologize to James Mangold. I apologize to Christian Bale. I apologize to Christian Bale's son. But that's all I kept thinking the whole movie was I should be watching The Irishman. This movie is a glorified TV movie. This movie should have been made in 1990 for NBC and it should have starred, I don't know, uh, Dick Burgard or something like that or, uh, you know, maybe Rock Hudson in his later years. I don't know. This movie was, uh, I thought, sort of a train wreck. 
Um, Terry's right that it's sort of this like David versus Goliath story, and yet I kept find myself finding myself rooting for the so-called Goliath. Why is anyone? Why does anyone like Ford in this movie? Ford, pl- played by Tracy Letts, is this overweight guy who actually leaves the uh, Le Mans race to go eat somewhere on his helicopter. Why are we glorifying glorifying and fetishizing these Ford executives who are rich? And really, the whole the, I mean, the real problem with the movie is that the, the, the stakes aren't very high. It seems like the only reason that we care about whether Ford beats Ferrari at this Le Mans race is because Enzo Ferrari insulted Ford and oh ho ho these rich white dudes insulting each other. What is this? Around the world in 80 days? Like come on. You know like give us some better stakes here. Okay. So I found myself rooting for Ferrari most of the movie. I, like, they even talk about how Ferrari makes better cars. They put more time and effort into it. It's like a family-owned business. They don't have the whole assembly line type thing. Well, I don't know why anyone would root for Ford. Um, as for the performances, I feel like Christian Bale basically gives the same performance here as he did in the in the big short. I feel like this is screenwriting 101. They need to add some artificial in, inflated uh, drama by making the Christian Bale character kind of difficult to, to deal with. They have to add the Josh Lucas character as this over the top exaggerated uh villain type because they need a villain in the story i thought the wife role the the christian christian bill's wife played by uh katarina balfi i think is her name is totally totally wasted thankless role okay just a total travesty oh they want to make her well she's not just a thankless wife role she's actually intelligent because she can drive a car fast okay give me a break that's terrible the stuff with the sun is terrible this movie feels closer to we bought a zoo than it does to like uh, uh, what was the Ron Howard movie that was really good? That that, that was Rush. Uh, Rush, yeah, because that was like a really good movie, and and that I feel like what what you're talking about with the way that this movie was made, which I felt like was pretty bland and, and you know unoriginal. Like Rush actually visually really caught uh, your attention and actually built a lot of suspense into the chase scenes. These I I by contrast were very perfunctory. Um, you don't really get a sense of Le Mans at all. Uh, you don't get a sense of the racetrack at all. It kind of tries to do that. Uh, you you know, it, it, it tries to do that, that horrible scene that we've seen in 8 million movies where the sun draws a map of Le Mans as a means to explain to the audience, oh, this is what the track's going to look like, but they never actually show it. And as Terry pointed out, this movie is obscenely long, with about with more endings than Lord of the Rings The Return of the King. So, in the end, uh, I hated this movie one and a half stars, real strong candidate for one of the worst movies of the year, and I'm astonished that it's getting Oscar consideration. But it is the kind of movie that, in the era of Green Book, the Oscars would, of course, completely embrace. See, I understand. I understand it getting some some Oscar love for some of the text. Like I said, the especially the cinematography is really good, but beyond and maybe some of the sound categories too. But yeah, anything beyond that, I don't know. Okay, so I'm somewhere in the middle. Zach hates it, so that means Todd has to love it. So Todd, don't don't let us down. Uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with you guys, actually. Like, it's is just old-fashioned entertainment. Like, it, it's this year's Hacksaw Ridge, essentially. It's a movie that's gonna appeal to our parents more than it appeals to us. Like, I watched it in a sold-out screening, and I was the youngest person there by probably 20 years. Yep, yep. And, uh, it's, I mean, it's just told us in as straightforward of a fashion as possible. The actors exaggerate their roles, especially Tracy Letts. And, I mean, it, it could have been made in the 60s, but at the same time, it feels like a Greg Kinnear movie. I don't know how Greg Kinnear was not playing <laughs> the ma- Matt Damon yes. part. Uh, 
But I mean, yeah, Christian Bale is awesome in his role. Uh, he he plays off Damon really well. The the racing scenes are are really kind of exhilarating to watch. I mean, and it heightens the intensity. It it, it pretty much is a shoe in for a best film editing nomination. Uh, but yeah, like you like I guess are saying, it, it is way too long. I feel like the the family stuff could have been cut, and it would not have changed the story at all or or the impact. The the Josh Lucas scenes also were just like annoying and repetitive. It's a, it's a corny movie, and it's a little disappointing. It should have been this, like, big, awesome uh, sports movie like Rush, but uh, instead it just sort of already feels outdated, and it just got made. It's never boring, but it's like a Disney movie, essentially, and you already know where it's going to go, like, when it starts, and, and there really aren't all that many surprises. I, I give it two stars. It just is, it, I mean, it's, it's watchable, but it's nothing special. So I end up with so he's in the, middle. the highest rating here, and yeah, yeah, there you go. He's in the middle, and 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 really, I'm just giving it that because of because of some of the the technical aspects that are really strong, and and what I feel are some pretty strong performances. I want to say something. Okay, is this like the first time, like in like a decade, that Josh Lucas has done something significant, and he is playing the same role he always plays, that guy who you just want to punch in the face like josh lucas is like the king at playing the guy you just want to punch right yeah pretty much except in glory road i guess true true but that was like 15 years ago now yeah i mean that it, it, he hasn't done anything for, like I, i'm watching the movie and he pops up like Josh Lucas, where have you been? Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't even aware it was, like that he was still acting. He looks exactly the same way he did in uh, *Beautiful Mind*. Like he, he has he not aged yeah. a, a one second in the last eighteen years. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys agree with me that the most impressive uh, scene in this movie is getting Tracy Letts's fat ass in a race car? That was impressive. That took some engineering. I mean, you know, they spend the whole movie building this engine, but the most impressive feat is getting his fat ass in a race car. That's impressive. Well, and, and it, sat it on made his for this. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Zach, you were saying how you were kind of rooting for the Goliath here. I think what made it in, made it kind of interesting and maybe a little more, a little different than than some of your other David versus Goliath is it was kind of like David versus Goliath, but also versus the system, because David wasn't Ford. David was um, was Shelby and. Um, and oh, I forgot his name already. Ken. Shelby and Miles and Ken Miles, yeah, they they were David. Goliath was Ferrari, and the system was having to jump through the hoops that Ford was making them jump through in order to do what they wanted. Um, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and then I think you said something really good too of how, okay, there there's this whole race of twenty four hours of Le Mans, and they don't explain anything. No. No, I was really confused at the end. Like, I didn't understand at all what what they meant by... Because they didn't explain... I had to look it up on Wikipedia later. Credit to the movie that I actually was interested enough to look on Wikipedia. But because of the fact that they... they, uh, It's not based on speed or timing. It's based on the amount of distance traveled. Did they say that once in the movie? Like, I don't Mm. remember them talking about that at all. You can't just assume that, right? Yeah. Also, what was up with Daytona? Did they actually have turns at Daytona at the time? Well, I think they, um, so Daytona can reroute their tracks so that instead of like going down the back, the back stretch, you turn in and go through some turns on the infield. 
Which again, they don't explain. Yeah. You they, think... they just kind of assume they you know something. Or even the simple fact that these twenty four hour races doesn't mean that the driver is in the car for twenty four hours. Exactly. They said that, like what two was or that? three drivers. They, they, yeah. they said that. They, they said uh, you you can't go more than four hours at a time, and then you have to switch out. Okay, if they said that, that was like that was throwaway. That, I didn't that catch was that. Such either. a throwaway thing that yeah, that you completely miss. You think that for a two and a half hour movie packed with just uh, minutia about uh, you know the cars and the hierarchy of Ford, that they would add some some dialogue that would explain that. You know, this movie also kind of reminded me a little bit of some of the criticism that I had of Green Book, which is that, you know, Green Book told a really interesting story that potentially had historical significance, but it bought, was bogged down by all the sentimental bullshit. You know, in this movie, I think we kind of all agree is sort of the same way. So, like, this movie was made into, this story was made into a documentary. I don't know if you guys heard of it, but it was it made into a documentary called The 24-Hour War that was made by Adam Carolla, of all people. Did either of you hear about it? It came out a few no. years ago. Heard of like, it. I would be really interested in watching that because I do think this is potentially a really riveting story to watch. But I, these filmmakers, and especially the screenwriters, I don't know why they get so bogged down in the uh, in the stereotypes and the cliches and you know all this just bombastic kind of like Disney-fied crap. Whereas there's a really good story here potentially, but it just gets bogged down in the sentimental uh, you know uh, uh, cliches. It's unfortunate. I, I bet the documentary would have been much more interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of awards run it gets. I, I've I've heard anything from it might be, you know, sneaking into a Best Picture race to at least getting some tech nominations. I I, I could see it. Earn, it's earned some techs, but I don't know. I don't know how it would get anything beyond that. But um, but yeah, I was disappointed. This was one I was kind of looking forward to, and it it did it kind of fell flat. So, and I think we're all kind of in agreement. I'm giving Come it on. The, the highest rating, and I'm barely. T Terry, give it a thumbs down. Just do it. You know you want to. All right, I'm giving it a thumbs down. I'm yeah. Giving it two and a half stars. There we go. I'll I'll That's it. it. Thrice declined. <laughs> I'll do it. I, I mean, it was it was like teetering on the edge there, and. Come on, yeah. Christian Bale's been in better stuff. I can think of ten better movies with Christian Bale. Mm. That, that sounds like a challenge we may need to do later. <laughs> <laughs> ten better Christian Bale movies. Well, go. yeah. No. Okay, <laughs> Rescue Dawn. Go, yeah, go. Em Empire, right. Empire of the Sun, American Psycho, uh, American Gangster, um, uh, any of the Batman movies. Well, we'll just say Batman American Begins. American Gangster? I'm sorry, I meant American uh, Hustle. I'm sorry. Snipe. Yeah, he wasn't oh, American. Psycho. Um, American Psycho. Amer and American Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dead po a wonderful job. Wasn't he in Dead Poet Society? No. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, maybe I can't. But, but he, yeah. you know, he. Th this is not... The Big Short, which is the same role, I feel like. <laughs> Vice... Just name any movie. He's better than he was in this. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, there's our review of uh, Ford v. Ferrari. If what we're talking about sounds interesting, go see it. But uh, we definitely did not enjoy our two and a half hours. Thrice uh, declined. Todd, yeah, thrice declined. I'm giving it two and a half. Todd, you gave it two. two and a half or two? Todd gave it two. Zach gave it one and a half. Um yeah, it's a fun movie to look at. Like I saw this in uh, so the Regal near me has a has their RPX theater, 
which is like just a, sl a slight step down from IMAX. So it was this huge screen, high-def sound and everything. I was in a chair that rumbled with the sound even, which made it a pretty cool experience, but it still didn't make the movie any better. It was so. a loud movie. It was. Buzz. It was a loud movie. Okay, so yeah. Uh, Thrice-declined movie on Ford v. Ferrari. Uh, and th it's got like 92% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. This is insane. I don't, e I don't understand. 80 on on uh, Metacritic? Eight point three on IMDb. I don't know what they're what they're I'm telling you. It's this year's Hacksaw Ridge. Like it's gonna get nominated for Best Picture, and nobody really yeah. understands yeah. why. It's a it's definitely geared toward old Oscar voters, and they're gonna love it. Yeah, that's a good point that you made there, Todd. I mean, Blindside was a Best Picture nominee, so yeah. And they'll right. nominate Greg Kinnear because they assumed he was in it. Best Supporting Actor nomination. <laughs> that role had to be written for Greg Kinnear. <laughs> He even, it even had the, the guy. <laughs> it even had the guy who played the coach in the Blind Side in this movie. I mean, I mean, it was built for John Lee Hancock and Greg mm -hmm. Kinnear. Mm -hmm. Like that was the partnership that should have been made here. Anyways, but there, it right, was well, it was a perfect post. Uh, it was a perfect Matt Damon role, as you point out, though Terry can't can't replace him. Well, yeah, he's just Matt Damon playing himself with an accent. I mean, that that's that's all he is now. Yeah. Now let's get into our deep dive. And our deep dive for today is the 1997 Quentin Tarantino classic, Jackie Brown. Who's playing who? Let's make a deal. Yeah, so what's she going to give us? Are you going to offer to set him up? Yeah. I thought doing something stupid. Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro. Is she dead? I, I, I... Yes or no? Is she dead? Pretty much. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Um, of all of Tarantino's movies, this might be the least heralded or the uh, least remembered as a classic. But uh, we're going to be convincing you today that it truly is. But before we get too much into it... It's trivia time. Uh, we do our trivia for our deep dives at the beginning because we always end up giving stuff away if we do it at the end. Uh, so, uh, for this one, we're doing it a little differently. Uh, Zach loves this movie. This is like his favorite movie. Zach, how many times have you seen Jackie Brown? Um, almost as many times as I've seen Apollo 13. Almost. Which is ridiculous. Which is a ridiculous obscene amount. Yeah. Yes, yes. Speaking of Apollo 13, that was one thing I was thinking of as we were talking about Ford v. Ferrari. Apollo 13 is so good at explaining all the things so you feel like you understand everything by the end of the movie, and Ford v. Ferrari explains nothing. Anyways. Yeah, did, did you also notice that Ford v. Ferrari had the same uh, title font as Apollo 13 at the beginning? I didn't. Okay, no. never, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> we can cut that out. <laughs> Anyways, Jackie Brown. We're talking Jackie Brown now. Okay. Thank God. So, uh, so, anyways, Zach has seen this countless times. I've watched this for the second time ever, like yesterday. And, wow. Todd, how many times have you seen this? Uh, probably between five and ten. Okay. So, there is one clear expert on this movie, and that is Zach. And because of that, Todd and I both came up with trivia questions about Jackie Brown. And we are going to quiz Zach on it and see how well he can do uh, on our uh, on our little trivia game here. And uh, we'll determine the winner by how well everyone does. So, Todd's got eight questions. I've got four. 
I only have four because, honestly, as I was watching the movie, I got too wrapped up in watching the movie that I forgot to come up with good trivia questions. That's a so, good excuse. Um, it's a very it, good excuse. It, it, and it truly is what it was. Like, I got to the end of the movie and went, yeah, I was oh, sort crap, of I forgot, to, I forgot to come up with more questions. Um, okay, oh well. That is perfectly acceptable. Okay, so uh, let's, let's say since... How about Todd? You go. Uh, you do two questions, and then I'll do one, so we kind of even these out. So we're gonna alternate back and forth. So Todd's gonna give two questions. I'm gonna give one question, and we'll uh, we'll go from there. Okay. So Zach, uh, where is Sydney from, and what is her occupation? Where is who from? Sydney. Sydney? Oh, like uh, the um, uh, <laughs> girls, the chicks who love guns. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Whew. No clue. <laughs> she, uh, she, I know, she has the styre, right? She And she's not Miss... Is she Miss Orange County? Is yeah, she from, she's Orange, from County? Orange County. There we go. And she's a personal trainer. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, what yeah, is the Mexican rec- restaurant next to Cherry's Bail Bonds? Ooh, I thought about asking that. Oh, that's a great question. It's like, it's in Spanish. It's like, El, El, I want to say El Chapo, but it's, that's not it. It's like you're, El, you're close. Tacos El, El Charo. El Charo. Oh, I was so close. Okay. <laughs> I, I was, that was I, pretty good. That was uh, almost there. All right. It has a really right, cool so sign, too. <laughs> okay. I actually came up with a fifth question, too. So we'll, uh, we can go. I'll, I'll, I'm going to ask my, my, my next two questions here. All right. Okay. My first question. During the opening credits, uh, what two letters are found on the patch on Jackie's arm? Uh, CA for Cabo Air. Exactly. Good. Yeah, good. Yeah. All right. And uh, next question, uh, as Todd was talking about chicks who love guns, it reminded me of another question I could ask about it. Uh, what actress is mentioned as being Demi in Moore. chicks who love guns? Demi Moore. Okay, good. Demi Moore. <laughs> okay. All right. How long has Max been without smoking? How long is Max? Does he even say? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he must. Five years? Three years. Three years. Then he put on the weight after he after he gave it up. Ten pounds. That's what you should have asked. Ten pounds. What he gains, right? Okay. <sighs> Had some trouble with my sweetheart's paw. One of her brothers was a blank blank. Bad outlaw. There you go. And he had an Uncle Fudd, too, which sort of hard to believe that Johnny Cash would have had an Uncle Fudd, but okay. All right, my next question. Uh, when you absolutely, positively need to kill everyone in the room, what gun do you need? Ooh, we know T- Terry was watching the first five minutes of this movie. <laughs> uh, AK-47. Well done, well done. What is the only fruit visible in Melanie's kitchen? Wow. I mean, I did on the last podcast ask for questions like that. Uh, <laughs> apple? Uh, there's a giant pineapple on the stove. Nice. Okay. That would make sense, because that probably goes well with the mixed drinks. 
The bar is two minutes from your blank, ten minutes from the blank. Okay, two minutes from your crib, ten minutes from uh, the jig. Gig. Yeah. Gig. <laughs> the jig? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's like you were reading the quote and just mispronounced the word. Yeah. I know the name of it. It was the Cockatoo Inn, which I've always wanted to go to, except now it's like a hotel. <sighs> All right. This next one is a horrible question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. What's Ordell's last name? Roby? Yes. How do you spell it? R-O-B-B-I-E. Good. Okay. It's spelled like Robbie. I thought that was interesting. Okay. All right. My last question's much better. Where did Ordell find Sharonda? Uh... A bus stop? Straight out of Georgia. And, uh... Where did Ordell and Lewis do time together? Huntsville. Yes. You kicked ass of my questions. You got like six. There we go. Right, the my last, the pineapple. My last I don't, I'll have to look for the pineapple when I watch it again next week. This one. This one's a four-part question. All right. Okay. Before the test run of the mall drop. What four details are given of the bag being used? Oh, by uh, by Ray Nicolette? Is that what you're talking yes. about? Like yes. how he describes yes. the bag? I want to talk yes. about this on the podcast, by the way. I have a, I have a conspiracy theory about the bag. Um, really good woman. Really good looking woman. Is that one of them? Yep, that's is that, one of them. Is that what you mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B- uh, Billingsley shopping bag. Is that another one that you're talking about? Nope. Nope. Well, Okay. Uh, he's You're thinking of the wrong bag. Well, okay, the wait test a second. Run. The, the test, test run. run. Like they're standing in the parking garage talking about the bag, and they spend like two yeah. minutes arguing yeah, about what the bag is. It's a Billingsley shopping bag. It's right. There are four details that are given, it's and wh- that's not one of them. It, it's white and it purple. Yeah. White bag, purple, Pur- purple image, image, pink writing. Ah. Really good looking woman. Okay. Yeah. Those I, four details. Wow. I love how you can tell in that scene that Michael Keaton is totally ad-libbing that line about a good-looking woman because Michael Bowen cracks up and he looks a little <laughs> bit to the side. I feel like a lot of Michael Keaton's scenes are improvised a little bit. I want to know why this is the only time that Tarantino and Michael Keaton have worked together. I, mean, I agree. I, I think we've, we, we talked about this last podcast, too. I think Michael Keaton just needs to work more because yep. he's awesome. Anyways, Okay. Well, that, that was fun. I, <laughs> I don't know Todd, what that proved. Todd definitely had the better questions, and it proved that you know this movie. So, uh, so Zach, since you are the expert on this movie, proven by that, tell us what it's about and what you love about it. All right, well, well, Jackie Brown is actually, I would technically say that Jackie Brown is my second favorite Tarantino movie after Kill Bill Volume 2, if you consider Kill Bill Volume 2 its own entity. Uh, if you don't, then I guess Jackie Brown would be my favorite movie. I tend to like the movies in the director's uh, oeuvre that get sort of ignored. Like, my favorite favorite David Fincher movie is The Game. No one ever talks about that. My oh, favorite The Chris- Game's awesome. The Game's a great movie. No one ever talks it about it. It is a great movie. And, and uh, my favorite Christopher Nolan movie is uh, Insomnia. No one ever talks about that. Um, I, I don't know why. They just kind of overlook those movies. And Jackie Brown... I'm just glad you didn't say The Prestige. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a party foul right there. Um, <laughs> no, uh... 
Jackie Brown, like Terry was saying, is a movie that's been sort of critically ignored. I do feel like in the last five years, for whatever reason, there has been a resurgence of love for this movie. I'm not really totally sure why. It may have to do a little bit with Robert Forrester and Michael Bowen, both of whom appeared in the last season of Breaking Bad. Um, and uh, I think Elmer Leonard is just uh, really beloved. And this movie came in amongst a wave of Elmer Leonard adaptations, which also included Get Shorty and Out of Sight, which featured the character of Ray Nicolette. Um, I love this movie. I've loved this movie uh, really forever. Um, I feel like, you know, if there is any kind of criticism I have of Tarantino movies, I don't like when he gets over the top and gimmicky. And this movie is, uh, as everyone has already said, you know, his most restrained. And um, really, it, it does something that I can't think of any other Tarantino movie does. And that, that the word I think of is wistful. You know, this is a movie that is kind of melancholic. It's a movie that's slower. It doesn't have a lot of violence in it. And um, it ta- it's really about getting older. And the closest parallel of any Tarantino movie to it is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we've reviewed on this podcast. But like... Like Once Upon Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is, you know, Jackie Brown's a movie about getting older, realizing that uh, maybe you didn't achieve all of your life's ambitions, but there is still an opportunity to do something great in your life. And uh, I love it. I think Pam Greer is fabulous in this movie. R.I.P. to the late, great Robert Forrester, who got a Best Supporting Actor nomination in 1997 for the Oscars. Very well deserved. And, uh... This movie uh, is just uh, so fun to watch. Just great characters. I want to hang out with these people, you know? I, I don't want a story. I just want to hang out with them. Maybe drink some, drink some uh, screwdrivers. Smoke, sm- smoke some pot. Get, get that oversized bong. Watch some Helmet Burger on TV. All right. Well, how about you, Todd? What's your experience with this? Uh, it, it's always been a movie I, I've liked. I think it's probably Tarantino's eighth best movie, but I mean, it, that, that that's not to say it's not great. It's still one of the best movies in '97. I I I really like it. I like all the characters. I've it, it's a movie I don't watch as much as his other ones, but I mean, I I do really appreciate it. Yeah, this is one I I remember watching it for the first time. Oh, probably like 15 years ago now, and for whatever reason, I never came back to it until now and one of the things i was thinking about and this kind of goes to what zach was saying uh watching it this time this might be his most tarantino's most mainstream movie like it it's like if you were going to talk about what movie is built to be a commercial hit the most out of all his films this is the one and i think it's because it is the one that wasn't a tarantino original this is Mm -hmm. the one that was based on uh based on a novel so he had something in place to work with, and from working off of that, I think it made it, it grounded it in a way that his other films aren't. Because his other film, and we, I've talked about before how Tarantino has basically created his own genre of film. and uh, But this is the one that feels the most like an average moviegoer would appreciate this. Uh, that knows nothing of Tarantino, that doesn't necessarily appreciate his style, they could appreciate this movie. Um, and, and it's, it's just fun. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a neat kind of caper film, but it's also like, like Zach said too, it's also about, about getting, getting older and it's very reflective at times. And yet it still has some Tarantino madness in there. Um, it's a really fun movie. It's a really, really good movie. And I know like Tarantino has been quoted as saying like, this is the first time he felt like 
a Hollywood director is making Jackie Brown. Because mm-hmm. um, before that, it was it was just his little his little films that he was putting together, and this kind of really was the first time after getting noticed he made a movie because this is his follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and that's a really important point because when this movie was announced, I mean, none of us are really old enough to remember this, but presumably when this movie was announced, you know, 1996, early 1997, everyone was everyone must have been like, oh, Quentin Tarantino, Pam Greer, uh, Jackie Brown, she's an airplane stewardess. This is his take on black exploitation. Like, obviously, you know, he's a cinephile. He's, uh, he loves movies from the 70s. This has to be his take on black exploitation. But of course, if you watch the movie, it's not really a black exploitation movie. And that's always been one of the best things about Tarantino, which is that you can't quite pigeonhole him. You know, you assume that he's going to make a movie. It's, it's kind of like in Glorious Bastards. Everyone just assumed, oh, it's going to be a, a, his take on, you know, the, 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 the bastards. No, there's like a Shoshana character and there's this Hans Landa character who's crazy and out of nowhere like he never he never quite does what you expect him to do and it's ne- it's ne- never been so true as with this movie and when you make your citizen kane when you make your epic masterpiece it is so because you know pulp fiction is his epic masterpiece it's it, it's so hard to do a follow-up that uh viewers can appreciate and and it doesn't let down the expectations and this movie is so different than pulp fiction well, yet it maintains so many of those follow-up. nuances I guess that's true. Well, four rooms, four, four rooms doesn't count. I, I don't. I don't think he would count that. But like, it it, it meets all the expectations. I think, and it doesn't like. T- it's not. Uh, it's not him trying to reinvent himself in any, any way. It's it's pure Tarantino. But um, it's just fabulous. I can't think of another filmmaker who made their epic masterpiece that everyone remembers, and then their follow up was equally good and maybe even better in some in some ways. Where does it I rank think the for fact you, Terry? that it was. What? Where does, yeah, it, where rank does it rank for you? for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, probably middle to bottom of his of his filmography, and it's just because some of the stuff he's done. I I'm the two Bill, Kill Bill films will be above it. Um, Bastards is above it. Um, what about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Where does it rank compared to that? Mm, that's a good question. I would put them probably kind of close to each other. Like, they're very similar I, I would, films in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would. They're they're pretty close to each other. Uh, Pulp Fiction is above it. Um, probably Reservoir Dogs is above it. Um, Bastards, Django. So yeah. I, see, I think Reservoir Dogs is the only one I rank below it. But I mean, I I love all of his movies. So see that? Yeah, that that's the thing. Is he he is he kind of just cranks out masterpiece after masterpiece. And in that sense, I mean, it like I said, it's his most like commercial. It's his most mainstream film, and in some ways, that's that's a great thing about it. But in some ways, also, it's kind of a detriment because he is so unique in what he does that when that this was stepping away from it, and you know, for someone who says he's only going to make ten movies, I don't want to. It was like oh, we had and we had to waste one on this, even though, even though it's great, it's not full Tarantino in a way that only he can do. If that makes any sense. Can we talk, I know this is a little off topic, but can we talk a little bit about the 1997 Academy Awards for a second? Sure. I, I think this movie was was heinously ignored at the 1997 Academy Awards, which was, I think, actually a fairly strong year. But this movie only got one Academy Award nomination. And what was that nomination? Robert Forster. Robert Forster. Robert Forster for Best Supporting Actor. 
loses out to Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting, which I really don't think any of us have a problem with, right? <laughs> no. Right. I mean, it, that's, you know, uh, one of the most iconic movie performances of the 90s, and Robin Williams is only Oscar. Well, he was also but, up against Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights, and ironically enough, Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear. As good as it is. <laughs> this is the Greg Kinnear episode where we talk about nothing Greg Kinnear is in. Although, can we just, can we talk about Greg Kinnear for a second in that movie? That's the most un-Greg Kinnear role of all time in As Good mm-hmm. As It Gets. I think gay he's artist fantastic in that movie, dog. though. He is really good in that movie. It's just very un-Greg Kinnear. Yeah. What is the most Greg Kinnear performance? His performance in uh, Ford v. Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. it's I, I would be say either those. Little Miss Sunshine or Flash of Genius. Yeah, Flash that's of like Genius. So, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, <laughs> basically Ford v. Ferrari. <laughs> ba- basically, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying it's like Ford v. Ferrari for windshield wipers. <laughs> <laughs> also, his role in Friends. He's pretty, pretty Greg Kinnear in that too. <clears throat> Who does he play in Friends? Uh, he's Chandler's boss at one point. Gosh, I don't even know if I remember that. I see. I remember him no, from wait, uh, Ross's boss, like because he he get, oh. he like is like asking Ross a whole bunch of like <clears throat> ra- random questions uh, in, in in his interview or something that have nothing to do with the job because he was trying to sabotage him because he was dating his ex girlfriend or something. Oh, I remember this now. Anyways, now that we've talked about Greg Kinnear unnecessarily yeah. again, let's get... <laughs> well, Robert we'll Forster see how many go- more times he can come up. Robert Forster was going up against, you know, one of the great performances of the 90s in Robin Williams. And, you know, we've talked about Boogie Nights on this podcast before, so there really wasn't a chance for Robert Forster. But one of the reasons we wanted to do this deep dive is to appreciate Robert Forster because he did just die. And he was a great actor. Uh, he's great in this movie. He was great in every single schlock B exploitation movie of the 1970s and 80s. And he was great on Breaking Bad as the vacuum guy who, uh, you know, can make people disappear. You, yep. Terry, you don't know what we're talking about. I have no idea what just, you're talking just about. Just trust us. He was really good. He's also great I, in one scene in Mulholland Drive. That is true. I feel like there were a lot of movies that he had kind of one great scene. He was also really good in uh, The Descendants, the the, uh, uh, the Alexander Payne movie. Still the best scene in that movie is when he punches the kid. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. <laughs> He's got cold cocked. I think he even, t- doesn't he even say to him, I'm going to punch you, and then he hits him in the nose? I feel like he, he, like, warns him. He's really good on Fargo, too. Do you remember that episode of Fargo he was on, Todd? Was that season one? Yeah, I believe so. Vaguely, it's been a while. But I don't know how I don't know how uh, Pam Greer wasn't nominated for best actress for this movie, and I just think this movie was grossly overlooked at the nineteen ninety seven Oscars. I just wanted to put that out there. You know, yes, L.A. Confidential, such a great movie. The Full Monty, such a great movie. But you know, Jackie Brown's better. So, what would you take out of the Best Picture lineup? L.A. Confidential or The Full Monty, or As Good As It Gets. Don't take out... L.A. Confidential is one of my all-time favorites. I wouldn't take out Goodwill Hunting because we all know who produced it, Tarantino's BFF, Lawrence Bender, so he wouldn't want that removed. But let's take out one of those three. I've never been a huge fan of L.A. Confidential. I I think it's 
an overrated movie, but I know I'm 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 a dissenter uh, on this podcast. But that if thing. they had the voting that they do now, I still don't think it's nominated for best picture, even if there's like nine. Okay, but this movie came out Christmas. This was prime Oscar release by Miramax, and it flopped. That's why it didn't get nominated. So I and let's talk about that a little bit. I I think part of what it had going against it is the fact that it was the follow up. And there was no way this was going to live up to expectations, especially in the fact that it was so different. Agreed. It was such a different movie than Pulp Fiction, and even Reservoir Dogs. It was unlike anything he'd done before, and really unlike anything he's done since. And so it was just looked at as this is not what we were expecting, which would be why it flopped, which would be why it got only the one nomination. Kind of similar to, uh, to Hateful Eight in that way. I mean, maybe that's a good comparison, because Hateful Eight coming off of Django, it's like, oh, it's very similar to Django, ended up getting just one supporting acting nomination. Same with this. Well, no, it got, it won Best Original Score and was nominated for Best Cinematography. Well, oh, that's right, Morricone. <laughs> but same, similar idea, similar idea. I think this movie uh, was too black for the Oscars in 1997. And I still think the Academy didn't quite wrap its head around Tarantino's violence. And ironically, with this movie, there's very little violence in it. Um, and it just wasn't the movie that Miramax pushed. Obviously, Miramax chose to push Good Will Hunting in 1997, which is fine. Good Will Hunting is a great movie. But, you know, they had their priorities, and Jackie Brown wasn't one of them. Yeah. See, I noticed something early in the movie... Uh the the lines and facial expressions of of uh, Je- of uh, Pam Greer are so similar to uh, the Bride that I, I feel like Uma was like born to play Jackie Brown. It would have been a, a different movie. It would have had different feel and it, like the characters would have been had different confrontations. But I feel like that might have actually been a better sell than Pam Greer in this if they wanted to make this movie really successful at the time. Well, this movie was based on Rum Punch by Elmer Leonard, and uh, the original character of Jackie Brown was a white woman. But Uma would have been a little young on the young side to play uh, Jackie. Yeah, what was what was the original? Like, it wasn't even Jackie Brown was the name of it. It was no, something different. Rum Punch, which I've read, great book. I, I'm not a huge Elmer Leonard fan, but that's one of the maybe three or four Elmer Leonard books I've read, and it's my favorite. I mean, maybe because I love this movie so much, but it's a I was really, say, did you read, really did good Did you read book. it before or after you oh, watched after. the movie? Oh, De- after. Definitely after. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more detail. You know, the biggest differences are that, yes, uh, Jack, Jackie Brown is a white character. Another difference that people don't really talk about between the book and the, and the movie is that the book takes place in Miami. And one of the great things about Jackie Brown as a movie is this is a total Los Angeles movie. I think this movie may be better than any movie I've ever seen that was set in Los Angeles totally gets Los Angeles. Like, the scene that I think of with this movie that is perfect, L.A., is the scene when uh, Ordell and Lewis go to Max Cherry's bail bonds office at the beginning of the movie and then Lewis walks out to Ordell's car and you see the taco shop that you asked me about with trivia that is the most Los Angeles location I've ever seen in any movie like that as speaking as someone who has spent a good deal of time in Los Angeles like that is absolutely LA like forget the whole glitz and glamour that is like totally like the San Fernando Valley I mean that that's a beautiful shot that I love and it's totally Los Angeles well, and I think we've learned from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that Tarantino gets L.A. in a way that, like, no other filmmaker does. 
I agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we get into our uh, our regular categories here? Absolutely. So we always start with highest war, correct? Right. All right. So highest war for uh, for Jackie Brown. By the way, uh, I was I looked it up. So the Jackie Brown was originally the character was originally Jackie Burke in the in the novel. Oh, that's and he right. Cha- he changed it so that Pam Grier could play it. Okay, so highest war performance. Uh, somebody go. All right. Well, I, I my highest war in this movie is definitely De Niro. So when did you get out of jail? Four days ago. Where at? Susanville. How long? Not two months shy of four years. Four years? For what? Mike Romney. Really? Because <laughs> everything about... Like, I love this character. It's like the the forgotten great De Niro performance. Because it's all facial expressions with him. Everything is so genuine. Like, like when she's like, oh, it's Demi Moore. He, like, the look on his face <laughs> is that of, like, how f***ing dumb is this broad? And all he has to do is, like, give a glance. And it's like, you know exactly what he's thinking. And and then, like, he like he's there's, like, a striptease scene by by Simone. He's just like sitting there in his rocking chair and he steals the scene completely just by the look on his face. Like I cannot think of any other actor that would be that good at doing that. And that that's why I, I can't picture anybody else to play that character ever. Not even John Hawks. Yeah, and, and you're alluding to Life of Crime, which is the semi prequel to Jackie Brown that was released about twenty years or fifteen years later with John Hawks uh playing Lewis. But I can't really argue with that, Todd. That's a that's a great that's a great take. Tarantino. So wait, there was a there was a prequel to this released. Yes, Life of Crime, man. Oh, Mo Steph and John Hawks, and and Jennifer Aniston. Wow. Very underrated movie. I know Todd, you didn't really love it that much, but as as a Jackie Brown fan, it was an, I thought awesome. I loved it. That's that is that is interesting. I may have to look that one up. You should watch it. It's all about how Lewis and Ordell kidnap this kind of heiress, and she's like a rich sort of aristocratic society wife. She's played by Jennifer Aniston, and they kidnap her and they make her a hostage essentially. But what happens over the course of the movie is she starts siding with them. I mean, I guess you could say she gets kind of Stockholm syndrome, and by the end of the movie, they're all kind of ripping off her husband. It's it's a classic sort of Elmer Leonard uh, situation. It's a really good movie though. And this is another one of his novels? I believe so. Yes. Yes. I think it's a different novel. It's not Rum Punch because Ordell and, and, and Lewis and Ray Nicolette are all characters in this Elmer Leonard universe. So they appear mm-hmm. in, in uh, a lot of his d- different books. Go, going back to uh, Robert De Niro for a second, Todd, I remember, I can't remember where it was, but in one of the documentaries or makings of Jackie Brown, Tarantino talks about... In particular, in particular, the scene where Robert De Niro is on the phone and he's trying to call Simone, and he just has this like glazed over look, and like Samuel Jackson's, yo, yo, man, this this concerns you, and and Robert De Niro is just like looking on the phone, just he's not even he's like looking into outer space, like, and Tarantino said that was the greatest acting he's ever seen of any actor in any one of his movies, <laughs> and it's it's incredible acting, I agree. Yeah, it, it completely irreplaceable. Like, yeah, De, De Niro is just like it's like he's showing up and it looks like he's not working, but my, <laughs> but yeah, like like you said, 
the <laughs> great. It's yeah, as good at acting as you're gonna see. I I thought he should have been nominated. I think it's a top five De Niro performance. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that. Like, it's obviously not a main role in the movie, but. I, I I really want to agree with you, Todd. Like, I can't really think of another actor who could pull it off quite like that. Like, his look, he looks a little bit like his character in um, uh, 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 the, uh, the the Scorsese movie. Um, Cape Fear? Cape Fear, yeah. A little yeah. bit. But he looks, he looks like, it, it, it's like he didn't really do weightlifting in jail. Like, he's kind of, like, out of shape, and he looks really grungy. They talk in the movie about, you know, yo, I gotta dress my man. You know, he's kind of looking like a bum. Like, he looks like a bum the whole movie. Like, he's just awesome. He smokes a lot of weed. It's like if his character in Cape Fear was sedated. A little bit. <laughs> or, just, or just, you know, watch too many Helmet Burger movies while smoking a bong. Uh, all right, well, Zach, where are you going to go? Okay, I want to go Robert De Niro, but I can't. I got to go with the obvious one, which is Samuel L. Jackson. Now let me tell you how we're going to retaliate, all right? Tomorrow, I'm going to pick you up, take you over to Century City, introduce you to my lawyer. And let me tell you something about my lawyer. This brother's name is Stassen Goins, and this is a junkyard dog. He my own personal Johnny Cochran. Matter of fact, he kicked Johnny Cochran's ass. I mean, it's not fair. You know, it's it's like Jules Winfield. Like this is a role that was meant for Samuel L. Jackson. I, I, I he just exudes. Uh, I don't know. Just amazingness in this role. The hair, the costumes, the the screwdrivers, the orange juice, uh, the uh, the the mother. Uh, he is. Uh, this is the this is the most Sam Jackson role not named Jules Winfield of all time, and uh, he's amazing in this movie. Every scene he's in, he just lights up. The the amazing thing about his hair is that you can't really tell if he actually has a full head of hair or if he's balding. Or if he is bald, like it's just it's a it's a whole like subplot in its in its own and. Um, you know he uh the the way that he plays this this character I, I think it's a really complex performance because like he just he dominates every scene he's in like compare the way that he has that scene with chris tucker you know in chris tucker's balcony right outside his room compare that sort of dominance and like you know i'm gonna kill you versus the the next scene in the movie when he's with max cherry where he's totally different like this guy is a total sociopath but he's kind of a, a genius like he's a criminal mastermind who's also a low life like it's a total more Leonard character, it's told Tarantino character, and Samuel Jackson is perfect. There's there's no other actor who could play that. Highest war, easily. Yeah, that's a that's a good one too. That's a good one too. Uh I'm gonna go with I, I when you said I'm gonna go with the obvious one, I thought you were gonna go with this one, so I'm gonna go with that, and that's Pam Greer. If I had to tell you to shut up one more time, I'm gonna shut you up. I just came over here to talk to you. To talk? The way I see it, you and me got one motherfucking thing to talk about. One thing. And that's what you are willing to do for me. I can get your lawyer. Oh, no, L let's be realistic. I mean, this movie, it it's, you could say this movie doesn't exist without Pam Greer. I mean, Tarantino made this movie for her. Um, I, I was I was reading some of the trivia on, on IMDb about this movie, and... Um, and uh, when Pam Greer went to audition for this with uh, with Tarantino, he had up on up on his wall like all all of her movie posters from the seventies. And uh, and Pam Greer walks in and says, "Did you put those up because I was coming?" And and uh, 
And Tarantino says, no, I considered taking them down because you were coming. <laughs> I mean, he, he is just a fan of hers and had to make this movie to resurrect her career. And apparently she auditioned for Pulp Fiction. Yes, the Roseanne and, Arquette uh, character. Yeah, auditioned for Jodie and, uh, and lost out to it. But that it was like then is when Tarantino decided, I need to make her a movie. And Do you, do you know why? She's she... so good. What? I'm sorry, Terry. Do you know why she lost out to that role? No. Because Tarantino was going to cast her. It's because Tarantino thought it, it. no one would have believed the idea of Eric Stoltz yelling at her. No one would have believed that, that she would have taken it. <laughs> that That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I, and I we're was having about 17 it, it would, piercings. It just yeah, well, wouldn't have too. fit. It just wouldn't have fit. But I, she is she is the embodiment of this character. Like I I can't think of anybody else who could have who could have put this role together quite like she did, and uh, in in all of the the class and dignity and ferociousness that that she brings to that role, um, she's she's the highest war. I mean, this movie literally wouldn't exist without Pam Greer. So, that I think that's the definition of highest war. Yeah, so I read the Pam Greer autobiography because I love this movie so much. I really only read the sections, though, on, on Jackie Brent. I, I guess I read a little more than that. And she says that the biggest clash, she loves Quentin Tarantino, but the biggest clash that they had on set was Tarantino was insistent that there should be no scene ever where Jackie Brown is seen as weak or seen as crying, especially. And Pam Greer thought that that was unrealistic and she wanted to have a scene where she cried. But Tarantino ultimately won that battle. But that was the biggest gripe she had with Tarantino as a director. Interesting. And that's not necessarily that consistent with some of the other stuff that he's done either. No, 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 not at all. Huh. Maybe it was just because he, he had to uphold his image of of Foxy Brown now being Jackie Brown. I don't know. Maybe. Do you know that the, 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 the scene where Jackie Brown goes to jail, kind of toward the beginning of the movie, this the, do you know the song that's playing is actually sung by Pam Greer? Well, 99 years is a long, long time. 99 years, I'm a long time woman. Yeah, I love that song. Know that. Really? That's a good, it's Pam Greer is on the soundtrack too. I actually think I just too. read that somewhere. N- yeah. n- that bolsters, I think, your case for Pam Greer being highest war because no other actress could also be on the soundtrack too. It's true. It's true. All right, where are we going next? We usually do worst performance next. Okay. Worst, worst performance. performance. Worst performance. That's a tough one. A lot of good performances in this. Yeah, city. I don't really think there are any bad performances. So we're looking for the performance that's the least good. Yeah. So I'll volunteer to go first. Um, I've never loved Tarantino's cameo in this movie, which is as the uh, answering machine voice. It's very obvious that it's Quentin's voice. It's a scene that really has nothing to do with the movie. Uh, it's uh, when. Uh, Robert Forrester is leaving her a message where he leaves like three different phone numbers that that Jackie can reach him at and uh it just sounds completely unrealistic. I've never heard any answering machine that sounds like that. 
And it feels like Tarantino was, like, wanting to make people know that he was in the movie. Because by that point, it was like, oh, Tarantino, is like, he's like Hitchcock. He has to have a role in every one of his movies. So here's how he's going to insert himself into this movie. It feels a little bit like winking at the camera a little bit. But it's, it's a bad performance. Contrast that with the last episode we did where we talked about how great Martin Scorsese was in Taxi Driver. I think Tarantino could have upped his game a little bit in this movie as an actor. Yeah, he always has to be in there somewhere. And yes, I would say I would say of all of his of all of his cameos, this definitely is like competing for his worst cameo with Australian Django in Django. Django. Yeah. I mean, at least that's the best thing you can say about this performance <laughs> is that like in Django and Chain, that was actually a relatively significant role in the movie that had importance. Like this is not an important scene at all. Django and Chain he kind of ruins. Like that's the worst part of that movie is his his role in that. All right, it all right, Mike. takes you out of everything that's going on. It's yeah. so bad. It's bad. Okay, so my my worst performance, I'm going to go with uh, Michael Bowen's performance as uh, oh. Mark Dargis. Oh, um, Terry. And 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 here here's why. So he's Uncle they're Jack. playing they're playing like good cop bad cop here, right? And so he's always just like going off and like freaking out and yelling at 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 Jackie Brown. And then Michael Keaton, it's like he comes in, it's like, okay, okay, stop, you're you're crapping on this entire scene here. Let me fix this, and and it's like it's like Michael Keaton, the way he comes in and plays the good cop, he's kind of looking at him and saying, okay, you you really suck at this. Let me fix it. And that that's that's why I'm saying he gives the worst performance because it's like Michael Keaton in that moment is saying, you're giving a horrible performance. Let me. I mean, that's how it's written, but it's kind of it's I. I that's kind of how I saw it. It's like, okay, 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 you, you, you suck. Okay, let me, let me fix this. So he's he's my worst performance. Even though that's just how the performance was written, I'm gonna say it was the worst. Uncle Jack is great in this movie. You you watch yourself, man. He's awesome, and like. <laughs> He's great in this movie, and I love his outfit, and I love that, you know, he's like, you know, I will not let you smoke in the office. I mean, he's he's kind of an asshole, but he's a great asshole, and he's really likable in this movie. So shame on you, Terry. That's a good performance. Good performance of a challenging role of someone unlikable. Like Uncle Jack. Okay. And Buck. And Buck. And Buck. I, say, I forgot. Buck. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my worst performance, uh, similar to the last podcast, like it's Amy, the Billingsley sales girl. I thought about going with her. Yeah, it's a good one. one. It's like she has this like she. It's the only performance that's anything less than consistent. Like she's like has this one eighty from like friendly to like cutesy to annoyed to bitchy, and I don't know if that's like was by design, but like I never believed that that was the same character in those like over the course of that five minutes that she was on screen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. She, she's not great. Again, I don't know if that's the performance or if it's the role, but she does kind of seem bored at her job. Like she's on the phone, kind of laughing a little bit, and yeah, yeah. It's just, it's not a good character. She just like lets some random guy go in and go into the woman's dressing room just like because he said that someone left some towels back there. She's like, oh yeah, they think they're probably still back there. Nobody's in there. <laughs> Oh, okay. I also think she sort of struggles a little bit with the uh, cash register. You know, Jackie is in a hurry. You know, she should be ringing up that shit a little bit faster. I mean, I realize it's two hundred and sixty-seven dollars, but come on, go a little faster. Got got things to do. She like yells at her for not taking her change. It's like, 
Just pocket that shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. Alright, where do you guys want to go next? I want to go favorite minor character. There are so many great minor characters in this movie and i know last podcast we did the uh power rankings of favorite minor characters that we want to see as spin-offs so i want to hear what are some of your favorite minor characters from this movie obviously not uh, I'm, amy i'm going beaumont yes uh, just be, i i love yes. chris tucker and this is good and call. whenever i get to see chris tucker it's a it's a good time and like a scene between samuel jackson and chris tucker i mean they, they like no one, I mean, okay, this role was written for Samuel Jackson, right, of Ordell. However, couldn't you see, like, Chris Tucker now playing that character? Yes. Like, like, like that's, that's, Chris Tucker has, like, grown up to be Samuel L. Jackson. If, if someone just give him a chance to, to do that. So, yeah, I think, I think that needs to happen. I think Tarantino in his next movie needs to write a role that would have been a Samuel Jackson role in the '90s and cast Chris Tucker in it. <laughs> but yeah, just seeing them yell at each other, it was like, it almost was like he was yelling at his son because they were so much alike. And uh, and yeah, I, seeing Chris Tucker just makes me happy. I love that scene. I love that scene outside Beaumont's apartment, even though there's a lot of unnecessary n-words that tarantino inserts there but like it, that's such an awesome scene because like on the one hand ordell comes off as this like benefactor who's like really nice and then you start seeing the viciousness of the ordell character you start seeing the manipulation like when he starts pointing his finger and he talks about and why and why are you out you know do you think that i want to bust out you know, it's like that. You you see the evolution of the boat of the Ordell character in just that one scene, and it's just one long take. Very you know underhanded, uh, subtle, uh, uh, restrained filmmaking that you see a lot in this movie. But I agree, Chris Tucker is awesome in this movie. One of his best performances. Great, just great acting. Does Rush Hour exist without Jackie Brown? Are you saying like does Chris Tucker's career exist without Jackie Brown? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I think so. Didn't the Fifth Element come out before Jackie Brown? Like yeah, he was really good in that movie. Yeah, and Friday and stuff like that too. So I don't know. Have you okay? Do either of you know the guy that was on the TV that Chris Tucker was watching? The guy, the the, the guy that says my lifestyle demands that I be with a good-looking woman. I've never been able to figure that out. I feel like it's some baseball owner or something. Uh, do you know i i I want to know i want to know i want to see that full interview like that is fascinating some baseball owner that's that's your go-to for for that awesome all right well my favorite minor (laughs) character i have two one of which is said haig as the judge damn it todd p but i i but my uh but the real one is winston the uh who because he's like the least likely receptionist ever and he, he's like even sort of a soft he even cares what what movie max is going to see when he when he leaves and he has that you know that winning personality like he, he's awesome like i like that character i wish I, I i would watch the whole movie just with that character 
Yeah, that character's awesome. And yes, that, that would have been a great one to put into the best, uh, <laughs> most likely spinoff characters. Mm-hmm. I want to see a movie just about Winston. Winston, yeah. That's what I do. I find people who don't want to be found. <laughs> I love Winston's line, like, like, there's only three reasons why your ass doesn't show up, okay? You're either in the hospital, you in jail, or your ass is dead. Like, I, that, that's awesome that, like, he's on the phone. Like, he's, like, dealing with customers, you know? Like, that's awesome. He it's actually the, has a the really... The least likely receptionist <laughs> of all time. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, all right, Zach. Well, Todd stole mine a little bit, but I'm going to go into Sid Haig a little bit, who's awesome in this movie. Sid Haig as the judge. I, I think it's kind of an interesting scene that I've always kind of wondered about because the prosecution, the the Dargis character recommends that Jackie get like bail at like $25,000 because she's a flight risk, apparently. And then so so Sid Haig, it, you know, he writes something down. Then he looks at her for like two seconds. is like, ah, you know what? Um, you dargus i'm going to recommend her at only ten thousand dollars like he's a nice judge you know like like and, and he talks to her and he's like I, I think fairly respectful and um he's bald and he's <laughs> awesome so i would love to see a spin-off movie with judge sid haig in the la city court you know like dealing with people who have been in prison giving nice sentences a nice judge for once and and Winston's the bailiff. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm surprised that Tarantino never made a, a bigger role for him because he he's like what the bartender at Bud's at Bud's uh, strip club or whatever, and and now he's the judge here. Like he, he's one of the like the key players in a uh, he's one of the key players in uh like black exploitation stuff. I would assume that he would have made a like made him a main character or at least more of a significant character in, in one of his movies. Yeah, apparently in the courtroom scene, Pam Greer had a tough time keeping a straight face because she couldn't picture him as a judge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. not hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, House of a Thousand Corpses <laughs> becomes a judge. <laughs> Did you notice that the name above uh, Ordell's name when Jackie goes to Melanie's apartment is the is the name Haig? I thought that was going to be one of your trivia questions, by the way. Oh, that, That's awesome. that would have been good. You should have, like, written trivia questions for us. I mean, that, that just come up with all this random stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, I'll ask you one trivia question that literally I noticed for the first time. This is, you know, time number 95 for me watching the movie. I never noticed this until I just rewatched it. Do you know... The pineapple. The, oh, well, besides the pineapple, <laughs> obviously. Okay, so when they're at the Del Amo Mall and... Uh, uh, Jackie's meeting with Sharonda. What restaurant does she have a drink from? Now, I never noticed this because, sadly, I only own this movie on DVD, inexplicably. I don't own it on Blu-ray yet. So you kind of have to look a little bit, like, close. But you can see the label on the drink. Oh, oh, is it is it a, is it a Tarantino reference? It is a Tarantino reference, is it, totally. Is it a teriyaki donut? No, no, but that was that oh. was the where, where Jackie and Ordell uh, eat in an earlier scene. I have no idea. It's an oh, it's an amazing Tarantino reference because it never shows up until a film that came out seven years later after this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Tarantino must have had this this name in his brain for a long time. Well, it's like the red apple cigarettes are on, kind of yeah yeah too yeah. So Sharonda is eating from a restaurant called the Acuna Boys, 
And if you look at the drink that she has, oh, it says yeah. the Akuna Boys, which of course in Kill Bill Volume Two is uh, where Esteban Vejo he is in charge of the Akuna Boys. And uh, I I never noticed that <laughs> until awesome. I just rewatched it. That's amazing. Oh, also, that mall, like, it has a striking resemblance to the Washington Mall in Ocean View in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. I could not get that out of my head watching this scene. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, oh, here, here's, a good, here's a good trivia question that I was thinking of asking um, that I should have asked. Uh, as, as Max Cherry leaves the movie theater, what movie poster is behind him? The American President. Yeah, I I thought you were gonna ask that. And what appears to be some kind of vampire movie? It kind of looks like it could be Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I'm not entirely sure, but I can't really see the name of it. But I was prepared for that question, Terry. I figured you were. That's why I didn't ask it right away. Not the Mexican restaurant, apparently. Yeah. No, not the Mexican restaurant. That's that's obscure. El Chapo. Charo. I know there's an L at the beginning of it. <laughs> El Charo. It started with an S, though. <laughs> all right we should go to uh biggest stick man good one yes a lot of candidates in this movie i think a lot of people are getting it in this movie unlike taxi driver okay well i i went with max cherry because i feel like he he can talk his way in and out of any situation he like effortlessly effortlessly seduces jackie and like i mean he's got he's got that charm you know like i mean and he's been in the business for a long time he probably he like he meets a lot of people that are in trouble i'm sure that there there's negotiated like sexual favors or something like he's 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 a total stud <laughs> that's a terrible pick <laughs> he's been in the business max, a long time he probably <laughs> max cherry is lonely he goes to movies at the mall at 3 p.m on a thursday on his own he's not getting it in todd oh come on but he he like seduces jackie like without any sort of effort whatsoever i, I think there's there's mutual seduction going on there i don't know i don't know that was, I'm, that was I'm gonna go head. I'm gonna go with Ray Nicolette <laughs> by Michael Keaton because it, it feels like so in this whole the way they play their good cop bad cop it feels like he just instantly has Jackie wrapped around his finger or at least he thinks he does and if you get someone who's not quite as smart and independent as Jackie then he can he can really manipulate that into whatever he wants to do with it so um, and I mean he's Batman so who's that <laughs> and birdman and birdman i'm batman he, those are both terrible the picks. same character in, in the other guys like the exact same character <laughs> michael keaton kind of plays the same character and everything but like your There's matt damon a... thing where <laughs> kind of like the matt damon thing <laughs> and greg kinnear <laughs> and, and greg kinnear ding <laughs> Uh, all right, Zach, you, you're you're crapping on our picks. So what do no, you? No, those are terrible picks. Well, I mean, I I know that we're sexist with the biggest stick man, but like, 
if we're if we're being inclusive of women, if we're being feminists, like obviously Melanie would have to be number one. Oh right, one. right, yeah, exa- exactly. Okay, so if we're excluding women, we're being the He-Man haters club from from you know the little rascals. If 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 they can only be men, I think it's obviously Ordell. I mean, Ordell gets it in with Sharonda, Simone, and Melanie at the very least. Like obviously, he has uh, an incredible sex appeal with the long hair and the kanga uh, hats and the ponytail. Um, he, he's, he's for sure getting it in. Um, I mean, you know, he can, he can convince any woman to, you know, d- do whatever he wants. He's, he's very, very appealing, you know, with, with, with his money. I would also go with a low key candidate of Mr. Walker because Mr. Walker has a lot of money and a lot of cocaine. Mr. Walker also has a prominent role in Life of Crime, the prequel to Jackie Brown. But Mr. Walker, I think, is one of the great unseen characters in any movie because he's the whole reason this shit goes down. Is Mr. Walker decided one day to just put some blow into Jackie's uh, briefcase on her flight, and without which this movie never would have happened. So Mr. Walker is a low key candidate for MVP as well as Stickman. I like it. Can 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 your uh, can your Stickman be someone you never see? I think it's possible. He's living somewhere in Mexico on a yacht, and he has a lot of drugs and money and He's, guns. Mr. Walker's not his real name, right? Like, there's no way. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 questionable. All right, we should do biggest douchebag. Oh, a lot of candidates there too. Mine is absolutely Officer Dargus. Because like mm, yeah. Uh, yeah like if <laughs> the movie was made today, uh, it would be played by Rob Riggle, and I mean which would only <laughs> heighten the douchiness. Like he he treats Nicolette like he's like his secretary or something. Like he has this aura about him that's just like douche everything douche. Officer Dargus, but definitely biggest douchebag. I mean, can you go anywhere from there? That's that's, that's hard. It's hard to top. Hard to imagine ever yeah. topping that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm looking. I'm looking through these characters. N- no one really tops the list. I mean, everyone. The problem with this movie is that everyone is so goddamn likable. Like you just want to hang out with all of them. There's no douche in this movie, with the exception of Dargus. Like everyone's really cool. Like that. That's that's my favorite thing about this movie. Is I just want to hang out with all these people. Uh, my 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 biggest douchebag is uh, is Josh Lucas from Ford v Ferrari. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Because he's just the worst. Like 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 we talked about how he was like the worst in Beautiful Mind. This is like the worst of the worst. It, it, it's it, he's he's like next level douchey in Ford v Ferrari. That's my pick okay. for biggest douchebag. I do have a- this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not Greg Kinnear, though. Not Greg Kinnear. Not the cheese. <laughs> All right, I do have one douche, and that is the character, also another character who's unseen, of Hiro, 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 Hiroshi, who lived with Melanie in Japan for an undisclosed amount of time. Because he's a pretty big douche, because Melanie doesn't f*** him, which is pretty amazing, considering her track record. And, like, 
she he, he, they didn't really have a whole lot to say to begin with. She dislikes him so much that she cut out the picture that she has with him, the one picture she has from Japan. So he had to be a a pretty pretty major douche to some degree, even though his English was better than her Japanese. Once again, we're going with characters that are not seen. Yeah, Hiro- and his name is not his name is Hiro 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 Hiroshi. I'm surprised that character didn't come up again in Tarantino universe. Yeah, I mean, you would have th- thought that he would have made a guest appearance in Kill Bill Volume One, maybe as one of the crazy eighty-eight. I, I I'm gonna say that um, that his nephew is the uh, waiter at Hitori Hanzo's restaurant. Ooh, yes, <laughs> I love it. That's a great call. In the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Total douche. Uh... Okay, so I wanted to do a list. I, I, I just heard Todd say one of the lists that I wanted to do, which is that we can't recast this entire movie in 2019, but if you could recast one character in 2019, who would that be? We heard Rob Riggle as Officer Dargis, but are there any other characters? <laughs> well, that you and recast? Chris Tucker as Ordell. Chris Tucker as Ordell. Uh... I think Ordell's pretty irreplaceable. I think he could still low-key be played by Sam Jackson. And I That's actually... I Does actually Sam low key... Jackson age? I mean, seriously. Like well, and I also think that Lewis 70. could... I think Lewis could still be played by Robert De Niro, too. <laughs> True. I mean, <laughs> if you're going to have Samuel L. <laughs> still... Agent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, um... I don't know, like, Emma Roberts as Melanie? Like... That no, I, not bad. I have the perfect Melanie. Are you ready for this? This was my entry to this list. Are you ready? Riley Keough. Oh, yeah. That's Done. That is Mic drop. One. Mic drop. Right there. That's it. It's over. Who would be Max Cherry now? Greg Kinnear. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Obviously. Oh, man. Yeah, that that's not bad actually. <laughs> yeah, Ma- Max Cherry is a tough one. I don't, I don't I don't know. I can't actually see Greg Kinnear doing that though. <laughs> well, well, we still we still have to cast Nicolas Cage too. That's true. So who would Nicolas Cage play? Who I think would... Nicolas Cage would be Lewis. <laughs> I'm just envisioning him on the phone, like holding the phone to his head, (laughs) staring blindly into space. Uh, Well, and especially the end, I could see. Yeah, that would. Well, I mean, I I think it would have to be Nicolette because, like, that was especially the era of Stanley Goodspeed. You know, like that straight cop agent thing. You know, like that's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would I would kill to see him in a Tarantino movie. Shit. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be a little nuts. I mean, the closest we get is, uh, you know, Fu Manchu. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, th- I well, think uh, I think Lewis would be played by Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> that would be beautiful. <laughs> and uh, and Max Cherry would be played by like what, like John Slattery or something. I I, I, I was gonna. Oh, like John Dillon. Slattery would be great in this movie. John Slattery as Dargis would make a would would make a good twenty nineteen casting. 
he's, he's way too old, but yeah. Well, I know, but can you see it though? Like that, that that would fit pretty perfectly. How how old is Max Cherry? He says it at one point. Fifty six. He's fifty six. Okay. John John Slattery actors. John Slattery as Dargis and John Hamm as Ray Nicolette. Boom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Done. Oh, gosh. Can we yeah, talk? Good's coming up. <clears throat> Can hey, we guess talk? who's 56 years old? Guess who's 56 years old? Terry Kinnear. Right now. Greg Kinnear. <laughs> <laughs> Why is Greg Kinnear... What were the Vegas odds that Greg Kinnear would pop up this much in this podcast about a movie that he has no remote... Relationship. Two with. movies. Two movies. He has no relationship. No, two. With. You're right. Two movies. He has no remote relationship with. Oh man. Greg Kinnear is the same age as John Carroll Lynch. Wow. Yeah, that's weird. And how Dean come John Carroll Lynch hasn't done a Tarantino movie? I know that that feels like a missed opportunity. Going back to the Nicolas Cage category, I think it's obvious that Nicolas Cage would play the Sid Haig role of the judge. I could see it. Yeah. Too. Do do you see anyone potentially taking on uh, Jackie Brown at this point? I told you Uma. Uma would be perfect <laughs> as Jackie Brown. <laughs> it is written I the think, same way but, the bride is written. Uma is not the right skin color, man. I I think it's fairly important that Jackie Brown is black. She's 44, right? Isn't that what you said? Yes. Do you know how much money she makes at Cabo Air? That was also, I thought, going to be one of your trivia questions. It's like $18,000 or something like that. $16,000 and benefits that ain't worth a shit. Like, okay, so I remember on the last few, a couple episodes ago when Todd was talking about Boiler Room, like, I use lines from this movie all the time. I use the line, benefits that ain't worth a shit all the time. I use the line, I'm home and I'm high, like Beaumont says, even though I'm not high. Like, when I'm just at home and I don't want to do anything, like, I don't want to go out to Popeye's Chicken and Waffles and pull a shotgun out of the backseat of a car with a bunch of Korea, you know, gun, gun sales, like... I'm home, I'm high, I don't want to do that. You know, I use that line all the time. And then, oh, can we talk about, okay, how about this? How about favorite line from the movie? I, I realize we have a, you know, a, a line, but but can I just give my favorite line from this movie? Sure. Okay, and maybe you, you guys can give favorite lines if you want. But like, so a few years ago on the Almost Sideways blog spot, you know, which, I, when's the last time we put in a blog entry on that? Maybe, maybe in the Obama administration, maybe like four <laughs> years ago. Todd posted his, uh, his, uh, Oscar predictions just like la- a couple months ago. And I put, there a, we go. A couple months the ago. Last, the last review was, uh, the farewell. I did a re- review of the farewell on there. Well, kudos to you, Terry. That's commendable. <laughs> and all my baseball previews. So yes, exactly. Cheers for keeping the blog alive. <laughs> when you, I, when I you think, predicted I think the, the Nationals to win eighty two games. The last time you posted on there was the Obama administration. I think literally. Yes. Well, <laughs> when I posted in the Obama administration, I once did an article called "Top Favorite Movie Lines of All Time," and my number two favorite line of all time came from this movie, which I realize is a little disingenuous to the rest of the movies that have been made but there there is a line from this movie that i love so much that i think it is the second best movie line of all time and that is ordell telling 
Lewis, in the Cockatoo Inn, you can't trust Melanie, but you can trust Melanie to be Melanie. Oh my fucking God, what a great line that is. I use that line all the time. I love that line. I think you've already used it on this podcast as your quote of the day once. I probably have, and you goddamn bet I'm going to use it as quote of the day this episode too like what a great line that is and that is so true about people and that's so true about ordell in this movie like he knows melanie he he understands melanie melanie is not is like she's a joker but she under but but he understands her you know jackie on the other hand he doesn't understand jackie has a sort of power that is intimidating to him and he can't really control it but melanie you you can't trust Melanie, but you can trust Melanie to be Melanie. Like that, that's such a perfect line. Tell me, there's a better line in movie history than that. That's magnificent writing right there. I don't know whether that was Tarantino or Elmer Leonard, but beautiful, beautiful writing right there. And you're telling me that there were five movies that should have been nominated for best adapted screenplay over this movie? Like, give me a break. Dialogue like break that it. is amazing. I hate to break it to you. You had it as number three. Okay, well, it's it's still a top five line of all time. I'm amazed you found that article that quickly. I, I did. I did. Can you name? Can you name the top two? Uh, the uh, round up the usual suspects. No. Oh. Is that <laughs> even? There's a... no way that. Oh, that was that was number four. That was number four. What? No. It's... <laughs> I think my favorite line came from Autumn Sonata, the Ingmar Bergman film from 1978. No. Yes, it did. No. It was like, um, in in it was from My Dinner with Andre, which quoted from yes. Autumn Sonata. Oh, okay, okay, it was so. from My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, God, that was a that that, that that was a generation ago. That was that was do you remember pre, the do you remember pre 2016 Zach when he drank a lot. What was less. the line? What uh, was the line? I could never live in my life, but I could always live in my art. Something like that. Which, which I could is, always live in my art, but never in my life. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a great line. But <laughs> number you know. two was from no, number two was from Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's the line that Julia Roberts says to uh, George Clooney. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. Ooh, that's a great line. Ooh, that's I love that line. line. Love that line, bitch. Sorry. All right. By the way, this, you posted rough. this in July of 2015. So this, <laughs> that was this article diff- over four years Different old. era when life was a lot better. Okay. Number five is Apollo 13. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, give give them uh, one to three odds. No, no. Tell Nixon one to three odds. Failure. You never lost an, an American in space. We sure as hell aren't going to lose Maryland on my watch. This is the last beer in the city of Houston. That should have been the line. Champagne. Champagne. Dude, you're losing it. Number six was Tootsie. <laughs> what was the line from Tootsie? That is one nutty hospital. That's one nutty hospital. Oh, that's a great line. Number seven was Naked Gun. I'm glad you agree with yourself. <laughs> I do agree with myself. <laughs> podcast is the epitome of a self-indulgence uh it, it is phil donahue was puking into a tuba is it not yep exactly uh <laughs> no, number eight is this is spinal tap uh that you can't you can't fingerprint for vomit you can't you you can't really dust for vomit yeah uh number nine is sideways i'm not drinking any fucking merlot yep exactly and number 10 is terms of endearment Ooh. Um, <laughs> this is a great line, by the way. It is a great I'm line. I'm sure Zach's gonna agree with him. Yeah, it's Jack Nicholson. Uh, in on his first date at lunch because you ladies, you you like lunch, and he says, "Well, she says to break the ice," and he says, 
to kill the bug that is up your ass. Right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. Your honorable mentions include Kibble Volume 2. Uh, uh, be like an asshole right here. No, you no. don't have a future. Oh, bitch, you don't have a future. Great line. <laughs> and then Speed. Uh, oh, wow. Where to choose from that? That's too many lines. Um, Pop Quiz, Hot Shot. Okay. Fish Called Wanda. Uh, don't Call Me Stupid. Yep. Annie Hall. Uh, I would never want to belong to a club that had someone like me as a member. Nah, I guess that's the way I feel about relationships. Okay. You know, they're totally irrational, crazy, and absurd, but I guess we keep going through it because most of us need the eggs. And Dr. Strange. No comment. Uh, mein Führer! I can walk! No. Mr. No. President, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. Oh. No, Mein Führer, I can walk is a better line. Yeah. So you disagree with yourself. That's I good. disagree with myself. Yeah. <laughs> 2015 Zach. 2015 right. Zach was a long time ago. That was a fun rabbit hole to go down. That was. Okay. <laughs> All right. What were we All right. Doing? How about oh, flaws? Yeah, Jackie Brown. Flaws. Flaws. <laughs> flaws. There, there, there's some question marks in this movie. It's not a perfect movie in terms of some of the stuff with the script. Well, w- one thing that I noticed is when he takes the Absolute out of his freezer, there's no frost on it whatsoever. <laughs> this is such a Todd. Such no. a Todd flaw. No, I mean, but it, it's like noticeably like that freezer is not on. He doesn't hold it like he's holding something that's frozen. He just like takes it out and he just like plops it on the, on the, on the counter. It was a terrible... <laughs> Terrible bit of continuity editing. It's I love how you knew it was absolute. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's obvious that it's absolute. The, the well, I, I know it's obvious it's absolute. <laughs> I just love how you just referred to it as that. Yeah. <laughs> That's my main flaw. You thought it was a Schwinn. <laughs> Greg Kinnear could have said that line. <laughs> I don't know what that's from. Uh, Burn after That's reading. From burn after reading. Oh. I think we need a deep dive of that movie. That'd be fun. I think we do. That may need to be our next. It's not one. a nineteen ninety five movie, but whatever. Well, we're not doing so. So we can talk about that a little bit. Once we hit uh, twenty twenty, we're going to be celebrating the twenty fifth anniversary of nineteen ninety five, and all of our deep dives are going to be nineteen ninety five films. It's going to be. It's going to be crazy. Uh, I I don't know if I agree with your police work a hundred percent there, Lou. I, I don't know if I love that idea. 1996. <laughs> that's, the, that's the wrong year, dude. <laughs> well, I Donnie, don't have... Donnie, I'm, you're I'm, out of your element. I'm, I'm, I'm saying my opinion. I, I don't know if I love doing just 1995 movies, but are there enough good 1995 movies? Which, by well, the way, low-key, this movie takes place in 1995, if you, if you noticed. If you this is attention. true. This is true. Which is why there, there's a poster of the American president. That's which true. I can't wait to deep dive. That'll be a great one to deep dive. Okay, that is a good one. Have our dad on for that one. (laughs) Yes. Oh, we need to do that. Terry Senior on for the American President. Can we get Cassie's dad on for uh, that Dustin Hoffman film where he plays the conscience? Um. (laughs) What? (laughs) Terry knows what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh. Oh, 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 the, the Joan of Arc movie. Joan of Arc, yes. 
Was that 1995? No, it wasn't. <laughs> the Messenger is what it's called. Wow. Dude. When wow, did that we're movie going come off out? Track. It was like not 1995. I say it was like 99. Could we seriously get Terry Sr. on for the American president? I doubt it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure he knows what podcasts are. 1999. The Messenger was 1999. Mila Jovovich. Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear. Of course. No, not Greg Kinnear. He was on that. John he was Malkovich. in that movie that was uh, on that poster in your dorm at that one time. That like Feast of oh, Love. Oh, Feast of Love. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's a total Greg Kinnear movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right, we're on. We're on flaws. Zach, give me a flaw. All right, I'm. I'm putting. I'm going to my notes, and I don't know if I understand my notes. Does this movie really take place in 1995? Because there's a line somewhere in the movie where Dargis says, "It's been 13 years since your arrest, Jackie," and he's referring to 1985. So ostensibly, the movie would take place in 1998, which is one year after the movie was released. Ouch. So, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, Why no, does I mean, Ordell- no, that, that that is a, that is a real flaw? <laughs> yeah right i don't what's he talking about maybe he just spoke out of his ass i don't know um why does ordell call melanie's apartment like what he calls him and says look what the hell are you doing there he's calling from the strip club like why is he calling the apartment maybe i i don't know i've never understood why he calls what like what, what the goal of his call was well, yeah, because ostensibly, Lewis and Melanie would have already been at the mall. Like, why is he calling? Maybe to make sure that they've left, but still, I, 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 I find that a little unrealistic. How does cashier Amy, Todd's worst performance, know that the towels are in the last stall? She says, go check, they're in the last stall. There's no way she would know that. Um, she Ordell, says that? Yeah, she says, go yeah, check in your last that. stall. Yeah. Didn't she, Jackie say that? Oh, did she? Yeah, Jack. I think, I think as she's coming out, there's a ba- there's a bag of towels in the last stall that uh, that the person bought that before me. Ah, uh, okay. Then never mind. Terry, that's a good point, Terry. Okay, I, I take that. I, I I recuse myself from that. Okay, um, Ordell is apparently someone who's very hard to find as this gun runner criminal, and yet he dresses in the most outlandish, identifiable ways, <laughs> like with his ponytail and his camo and his like the, the 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 shirts. It's a little obvious that he's kind of Ordell, um, and the the like the the gloves for each death that he that you know each killing. It's just you know I, he's trying to make himself discreet. Yeah, not really. It's kind of hard to buy. Why does Ordell bring his money to Cherry Bail Bonds at the very end of the movie? Doesn't really make sense. After Jackie goes on a long rant about why she will never convert to uh, record to tapes or CD, why does Max go to Sam Goody and buy a cassette? Why wouldn't he buy a record? Because he wanted to listen to it in the car. Oh. Oh, that's a pretty good explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I never considered that before. <laughs> you can't Out of put the a ninety-five times in the car. Oh, well, uh, that now kind of makes sense. But she talks so convincingly. She gives a great speech about how she, you know, she's sp- invested too much money in all of her records. I feel the same way about my DVDs. Like, I want to convert to Blu-ray, but I just don't have the time or the effort to. <sighs> okay, Terry solved that one. Um, all right, and then the last one, which is the big one. I don't really understand the last 20 minutes of this movie. Can you explain it to me? What happens? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've never really understood. Like, are you really telling me that 
that Dar- that Ordell would come to to Cherry Bell Bonds, and like the fact that the the Michael Keaton character shoots Ordell is so convenient because all Ordell could tell the cops is like he could say like that bitch stole five hundred thousand dollars and then Jackie would be done, like then the whole thing would go to shit. Like I I don't I don't quite understand the end of this movie. I've never quite understood it. Yeah, it had to work out exactly as it did. There were a lot of things to work out. A lot of things that had to happen to make to, to make this work. But whatever. You know, who cares? I'd rather watch a scene of Melanie and Robert De Niro lighting up a bong than actually think about the actual plot of this movie. So I'm cool with it. Oh, I also why does Ordell give six dollars to the bartender at the Cockatoo Inn when the drink is only three twenty five? Why doesn't he give him five dollars? <laughs> that that is a big tip. <laughs> that that is a big tip. That is an unnecessary I, one. It, to it include. seems it seems like a discrepancy from the Ordell character that he would tip that much, but whatever. He likes the cockatoo win. I, I think the bartender at the cockatoo win should have been played by Steve Buscemi. Probably. No, no. I I love the I love the bartender at the cockatoo win. Can we talk Although, about all? Can we he's talk about all like the a double double the tip? The... Can we talk yeah. about all the men who hit on Jackie in this movie? Like Max hits on her, Ordell hits on her, Ray hits on her, the bartender hits on her, and low key you could make the case that the judge hits on her, Judge Sid Haig, <laughs> by giving her <laughs> a reduced bail. <laughs> That's debatable. lots of men love lots of men love love Pam Greer in this movie, including Quentin Tarantino. And who also loves uh, Bridget Fonda's feet. Yeah. Uh, yes. We won't go into that. Yeah. But Lewis does not, because he, he moves his glass <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's all I got. Oh, last question. Is Ordell Roby related to Margot Roby? That's something I was left wondering after watching this movie. How? No, no. <laughs> but who is he related to? Like this is all right. So this is like you know Tarantino universe. Is is there in are there any real interesting connections between Jackie Brown and and his other movies? Any any good crossovers besides the Acuna Boys? Well, watching it again, I sort of thought that Ordell was kind of like Marcellus, and Melanie was kind of like Mia, and Lewis was kind of like Vincent. Those characters have a lot of parallels. Marcellus is like Mr. I, Walker, I was wondering... Though. Yeah, I, I was wondering, Lewis should have been played by Michael Madsen or John Travolta. Yeah. Because, yeah, it just kind of fit. Wait. Apparently, De Niro wanted to play Max Cherry, but Tarantino was set on Robert Forster, so he gave him Lewis's part instead. De Niro would have been a good Max Cherry. Either way, mm-hmm. he should have been nominated for this movie, no matter what mm-hmm. part he played. But Greg Kinnear gave a once-in-a-lifetime performance as the gay artist. <laughs> With a dog. With a dog. 
Do you think Greg Kinnear will ever get nominated for an Oscar again? What are the Vegas odds of Greg Kinnear getting nominated for an Oscar again in our lifetimes? Plus, plus four fifty. I would take. I would take. I would put good money on that. Four fifty. Like that's way too thin. Like it's got to be like more like plus forty five hundred. There's there's no way he's got like a. Fu- Somebody's got five to one odds to get nominated again. He doesn't make good enough movies. I was just going to say, what was the last thing he made that was... The Windshield Wiper movie. Significant. Was that Flash of Genius? Flash, Flash of Genius? Yeah. Did you see that, Terry? Yeah, I saw Flash of Genius. I bet you gave it three stars That's and you wanted to give it three and sure. a half. I, got, I don't even know what I gave it. I got to look it up. The last time he had a legitimate chance being nominated was for, like, Little Miss Sunshine, and that, that was forever ago. Who would Greg Kinnear have played in this movie? We do Nicolas Cage, say f*** it, we're gonna do Greg Kinnear. Who would Greg Kinnear have played in Jackie Brown? Ray, Ray Nicolette, <laughs> maybe. In, in yeah, like, 90, 97, Greg Kinnear would have played Ray Nicolette. 2019, Greg Kinnear would play Max Cherry. Oh, I would, yeah, I, I think Greg Kinnear would have played the answering machine in 2019. <laughs> I gave Flash of Genius two and a half stars, and so did Todd. Wow, that's low, man. <laughs> I think I own it actually, though. Of course you do. It's on my shelf. Have you yeah. ever, have you ever seen Feast of Love, the movie that you had a poster in your apartment to? No. Why did you have a poster in your apartment to that movie? It wasn't me. It was Joshua. Because it said shout Feast out, of shout Love. Shout out to Joshua. Do you think Josh was listening to this right now? No. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> this might be our, mo- our, our most insane, indulgent podcast we've ever done. Okay, LVP, let's move on. LVP. Let's yes. uh, yeah. Let's wrap yes. this up. LVP yeah. MVP. <clears throat> okay. Well, um, my LVP yeah. is Beaumont because he is a complete idiot. He he like he's like cruising around, wasted with a gun and a warrant out for his ass. <laughs> and you know he's he's high and he's loud and he's stupid and he's convinced to go get into a trunk because someone dangles in front of him chicken and waffles. Like, what an idiot. There, no wonder he gets whacked just like Stax. I mean, Beaumont is L- obviously the LVP of this movie. That was a beautiful rant you just that went was on there, Todd. That was good. Uh, let's see here. LVP. I'm going to go Greg Kinnear. Because... <laughs> He wasn't in this movie. But he should have been. And he should have been, and he got an Oscar nomination, and it was Robert De Niro or Samuel L. Jackson's Oscar nomination. Screw Greg Kinnear. He's the LVP. Sam Jackson would have been lead, though. No, no, yeah. no way. What, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you he was could maybe make for the a Golden case for, for Best Actor. Do you realize how loaded the 1997 Oscars Best Actor award was? I mean, Jesus Christ. You're really telling me he would have beat out, you know, Duvall or Hoffman or Fonda? Like, I mean, I, I, just, I believe he, he should have, but I don't know. My, my LVP, I'm going to go with Melanie. Because if 
she doesn't well melon the combination of melanie and lewis and that whole train wreck of a, of a sequence of them leaving the mall because that kind of ruined the whole thing for Adele. Like, if that doesn't go down like that, then I don't know if Jackie Brown gets away with it. Yeah. And it's her coke that Jackie got busted with. So clearly. That's true. Right. Yeah. Melanie, yeah. by the way, was played by Isla Fisher in Life of Crime. Really inspired really casting there. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. So, okay, M- MVP. MVP. M- my MVP is Sally Mankey because I feel like she's the MVP of a lot <laughs> of Tarantino's movies. Yeah, if it call. was told literally, it probably would have been a bit of a mess. And uh, I don't know. I feel like the plot is really complicated, and it and it goes about it uh, in a, in a way that actually makes it make sense, uh, except for the last twenty minutes, evidently. But uh, it, it, it's it's intense and it has humor, and that's a tough thing to do. And the the editor is definitely the sole. Uh, whatever, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. She's responsible for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if, if Sally Minky were still alive, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood wouldn't have been two hours and 45 minutes. Oh, totally. Sure. Absolutely <laughs> agreed. And would have been a lot better. Agreed. Even though it's pretty good, it would have been better. Anyways. My, right. my MVP of this movie is the Delphonics. They have, mm. I mean, they're the reason that, you know, Max uh, Cherry, fa- one of the reasons that Max Cherry falls in love with Jackie Brown is that magically on the soundtrack, the Delphonics start playing, even though Jackie is kind of hard to see, but, you know, he falls in love with her. And, uh, yeah, the Delphonics, uh, he goes to Sam Goody in 1995, buys a cassette tape, and uh, even Ordell recognizes at the end of the movie, is this the Delphonics? And, um, yeah, the, uh, the Delphonics, uh, invaluable part of this movie. That's not what he says. He, he says, I didn't know you were a Delphonics fan. Like, he didn't even have to say, is, are you, is this the Delphonics? He, he just knew. That's true. That's a great point. He just point. knew. And yeah. it gives him a, a little bit more respect for Max Sherry before his untimely death. They're pretty good. <laughs> uh, let, let's see here. Um. So uh, my my uh, one I'll I'll give two. So one of my MVPs is 110th Street mm. because you know it, it it lends its name to like the best song in the whole movie, and it's such a catchy song. Like I remember the one thing I remember about this movie, or one of the few things I remember from when I watched it like 15 years ago, is that song because it rolls around in your head for like months after you see this movie. So much so that even in the last scene when it just comes on. Jackie Brown starts singing it even. I mean, mm-hmm. it is such a catchy song that the characters in the movie have to stop and start singing the song. Like, like I, they could have broken out into a full-on dance number if she was not in a car when she started singing it. Um, but anyways, my MVP is Winston because mm-hmm. he, he just, he finds people. <laughs> like, he can, he can do, like, like, alright, so, so like, Ray Nicolette and Mark Dargis, they're like, they're like feds. They're ATF, and they can't find Ordell. And here's Winston, who finds him in like, you know, two hours. We they, we know exactly where he is. Not only exactly where he is, but what his phone number is. That I mean, is impressive. I, I, I mean, it is it is impressive. And and he is, he he I I think he he uh, 
would be like here here's here's the movie here's the movie pitch winston and mr wolf work together mm, that that's call. the movie right there that's the movie that should be tarantino's 10th and final film who would play winston nowadays would that would that be like uh idris elba or something um I, i'm gonna i'm gonna say like no 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 no, no it's uh no oh hold on hold on hold on i know exactly i don't know his name but i gotta think i gotta find him <laughs> i know exactly who i think he's gonna be <laughs> you gotta look I, him I know, up i gotta look up look up who i'm thinking of just it's, like uh, I don't know the name of the person I'm about to talk to on our power, talk about Winston our Duke. Rankings. Winston Duke. Winston Duke. Winston Duke would oh. play Winston. Yeah. No, you, you're totally wrong, Terry. It is obviously Brian Tyree Henry. Obviously, <laughs> he should be in every movie. Agree. Uh, He's like our new. Uh, I was also gonna often. say, you, you could also cast like Ray Lewis or Terrell Suggs as Winston. <laughs> Throw sucks actually looks like it. Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. What about Elton Brand? <laughs> there, well, he would produce we the movie. He wouldn't we act go. in it. <laughs> uh, you, you know who would not play Winston? Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably a good call. Yeah, it's pro- a problem. Or or Josh Lucas, he would be a bad Winston as well. <laughs> oh my word! Okay. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to our, our quote of the day now. Uh, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Okay, my quote of the day comes from Greg Kinnear in uh, Little Miss Sunshine. He says, there are two kinds of people in this world, winners and losers. And he also says, you know, Olive, Grandpa would have been proud of you today. Very nice. Beautiful. Very nice. Uh, I, I'll go next. My quote is from Greg Kinnear. <laughs> And this is just this is just Greg Kinnear. He 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 he's quoted as saying, uh, "I'm just doing the best I can with what I have." There are certain physical limitations to being a waspy-looking dude from Indiana, right? <laughs> Travis Bickle Part Two probably ain't coming my way. So with the roles I get, as best as I can, I try to see the cracks within the face and then magnify them in an interesting way. Wow, <laughs> Travis Bickle Part Two. That's that fantastic. was amazing. <laughs> I, I saw that quote and I said that I have to. I have to. All right, Todd, what do you got? Well, I'm gonna quote Ordell. He says, "My ass may be dumb, but I ain't no dumb. <laughs> but ass. ain't no dumb ass." That's a and that, that is just a great quote. Yeah, it's a great quote. Quote. That's such a good quote. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. All right. Well, do we have uh, any any last thoughts before we uh, before we close out this podcast? Any last uh, closing remarks? Isn't it true that Adam Daly has never seen this movie? I think that's probably I true. Say, yeah, I think that is it's true. Shameful, shameful. So, Adam, go watch this movie. You know Todd, you're listening, you Adam. Any, Todd, do you have He's any closing right thoughts? Now. Uh, no. I don't. <laughs> I have one. I have one closing thought that is completely unrelated to anything we've talked about so far. Uh, we talked about Ford v Ferrari earlier. Don't go see Ford v Ferrari. Go see Parasite. Yes. Fine, Parasite. Go see it. It Both is of you worth seen it. it. Best film of the year. It is yes. Whoa. Whoa. 
best film of the Rebecca year. Rebecca meets Funny Parasite. Games. In which case, Terry, you should probably watch Funny Games. Like that. That'll be my <laughs> my my trivia punishment for you. Then we could talk da, da, about da, which da, version. Da, 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 Illinois, Chicago. Maybe both of them. <laughs> They're the same movie, essentially. Yeah. Go go see go see Parasite. That's what I'm gonna leave you with. And with that. We bring the podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, find us all over the internet. Uh, we will catch you next time with another review and some more craziness about movies. And Greg Kinnear. And Greg Kinnear. And Greg Kinnear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I couldn't have planned that. Uh, anyways, uh, thank you so much again. Until next time, have fun watching movies.